welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. If you happen to be visiting with us, we extend to you a really warm welcome. If you're a regular, glad you're back. Um, you'll know that we've, if you're a regular, we've been doing a series that we've entitled uh, The People of God Transformed. And um, I'm, I'm heading toward a close, a penultimate weekend. We're going to finish it next Sunday. Just as a, kind of a reminder of where we've traveled in this series, I spoke first of all about the goal of transformation, the call of God to you and I to be Christ-like. Uh, out of Romans chapter 8. And uh, then uh, a little further on, I did a message where the starting place of that transformation is. We talked about the crooked timber tradition of our fallenness. I talked about the power of virtue. And um, that was one of the key elements that has kept repeating through this series. Virtue isn't just a synonym for goodness. And we pretty much in our culture... We don't, we don't use the word virtue very much at all. When we do use it, we pretty much use it as a synonym for, for goodness. But that wasn't how the ancients understood virtue. They understood virtue to be the willingness to make small, often difficult choices that over time establish what we might call a second order of naturalness in our lives. When you see a really good uh, guitarist or, or pianist or somebody who's learned a skill and you ask them about it, they'll often say something to the effect that, I don't, I don't know, I don't even think about it. It's, it's second nature to me. Well, the reality is that second nature has developed as they have practiced, as they have made small choices or done exercises over a long period of time, they've persisted in it until that second order of naturalness is established. And the ancients understood that process to be the process of virtue. Now, when we're talking about transformation, we aren't saying, hey, just in your own strength, make all of these choices because in your own strength, ultimately you'll get there. It isn't just the same order as practicing the guitar or learning a language, you, you try and transform your character just through your own strength, you will very quickly find yourself smack bang in the middle of Romans chapter seven, where Paul says, look, I know what the right thing is, I just can't find it in myself to do that. What we are saying is that empowered and, and inspired and led by the Holy Spirit changes the whole ball game. And then you do have the power to not only see what the right thing is, but in those moments to choose under his uh, inspiration and find that you, in New Testament language, are putting off the old order of things that was part of your life and find yourself putting on the new things. So we talked about virtue. I talked about the role of worship in the process of transformation, and we looked how from Romans chapter one, the failure to worship and be thankful was the beginning point of the disintegration of mankind in terms of fallenness. As we start to be restored, Paul talks about the fact that in worship, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we are changed from one degree of glory to another into the same image 
is Jesus. So there is something incredibly powerful about worship. It's not just about getting and singing, getting together and singing. It's, it's actually about putting your heart out there in a way that it, it can be progressively transformed. Uh, Chris spoke to us about the power of the Word of God in terms of transforming our minds. And last week, I spoke to you about recapturing our imaginations. With regard to that message, just let me say something I wasn't saying, because a couple of people have kind of fed back to me, and they're asking questions like, so Don, is, is imagination wrong? And uh, that's not what I said. In fact, I, I did make the point last week that uh, God isn't trying to do away with your imagination. That would be as silly as it is impossible because God's given you the faculty of imagination and he wants it used for his purposes in terms of dreams and giftings and longings. That, that will happen and, and, and ferment in that whole area of, of the imagination. What I was saying last Sunday was that um, I, I used my imagination in an, in an illicit way, in a way that was incredibly self-serving and, and built into my life patterns of incredible selfishness and self-absorption. And it was that that God wanted changed. Not that I wouldn't be imaginative or creative. He wants us there but it's possible to take the good gifts of God and use them in ways that they weren't intended. And I was talking to you about recapturing, recapturing that uh, faculty. Throughout the series, as we've talked about being transformed as the people of God, tried to make it as practical as possible. We're trying to unpack what it means when Paul says, exercise yourself unto godliness. What does that look like in our world? What does that look like in jandals and, and gumboots and high heels and dress shoes and gym shoes? What does that mean for you? One of the things that is difficult in this whole process of um, entering into transformation is who, who does what? What's God's role in this thing and, and what, do, what do I bring to the table? Is it about my effort or is, you know, is it just everything that God does? And, and I'm trying to bring balance to that idea. Um, in Pentecostal circles where we believe in God supernaturally encountering people, sometimes we tend to the second of those two alternatives. We, we don't believe in, in you know, all effort, but we are looking for that supernatural encounter of God that will change everything for us. And so many people over the years in Pentecostal circles that I've witnessed are holding out for some kind of encounter that will hopefully instantly transform their anger or their lust or their tendency to self-pity or bitterness. A lot of you have read biographies of spiritual giants who talk about these incredible encounters with God that they have. And I think it's incredibly easy for us to be misled by those reports. And we assume, mistakenly in my view, that their greatness was a consequence of those supernatural moments. And what we do is we overlook and neglect the years of slow, intentional, deliberate progress and development that they engaged in before those encounters and after those encounters. And those ongoing workings are every bit, in my view, as important and critical in the development of this giant spirituality as those spiritual encounters that they had. 
My, my conviction after watching this, you know, in over 40 years of ministry is that spiritual experiences, and they do come, and they touch our lives profoundly and deeply, but more often than not, they are an invitation to change. They can be the catalyst toward and provide momentum for change, but they don't guarantee the change in and of themselves. Change requires a good deal more than a divine zap. And if you're not sure what I'm talking about, you go back and look at some of the people in the scriptures who had incredible encounters with God. I think I've mentioned several times in this series, King Saul in the Old Testament. I mean, there was a time when 24 hours, he's out under the power of God prophesying. That's as pretty much as powerful a spiritual encounter as anybody could want. But he gets up from that encounter and he still can be insecure, envious, jealous, ultimately murderous. Those encounters can give you momentum for change, but you've got to let that be worked out and let the crooked timber of your life get staked up and moment by moment, choice by choice, see that thing turned around and straightened up. The divine zap won't necessarily be enough. Philippians chapter two strikes a balance between what God does and, and what we do. And it says this, Paul says, Wherefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God which works in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. You see us working out that which God is working in us. There's, there's, we, we both come to the table. This passage shows us that we're involved in the process. The old adage that says, without him we cannot, and without us he will not, is very, very true. God is working in us, but we must then work out what he's working in us. In Protestant circles, when you talk about working out, there's, there's always people waving red flags and, and saying something to the effect that, listen, Don, we know salvation is by grace through faith. Don't talk to me about works. But that's a misunderstanding of what the scripture says. You see, what they fail to understand is that working out is not the same thing as working for. Working for your salvation and for God's approval on your life is heresy as far as we're concerned. The Bible says that you can't earn salvation. You can't work for God's approval. That is given by grace through faith. But working out your salvation is a necessity. Grace and effort aren't opposites. Grace and earning are opposites. We don't work for God's approval. We work from a place of God's approval. But we work out the things that God is working in us. I read this passage a number of weeks ago. It's from the Amplified Translation. I wanna read it to you again. And you see that we are called to work something out. Peter says this, for his divine power has bestowed upon us all things that are requisite and suited to life and godliness through the full personal knowledge of him who called us by and to his own glory and excellence or virtue. By means of these, he has bestowed on us his precious exceeding great promises so that through them you may escape by flight the from the moral decay, rottenness, and corruption that is in the world because of covetousness, lust, and greed, and become sharers or partakers of the divine nature. For this very reason, adding diligence to the divine promises, employ every effort. 
the living New Testament just says, make every effort. And there are at least seven occasions in the New Testament, uh, the New Living Testament, where, where that phrase is used, make every effort, all right? Make every effort in exercising your faith to develop virtue, excellence, resolution, Christian energy, and in exercising virtue, develop knowledge, intelligence, and in exercising knowledge, develop self-control, and in exercising self-control, develop steadfastness, patience, endurance, and in exercising steadfastness, develop godliness, piety, and in exercising godliness, develop brotherly affection, and in exercising brotherly affection, develop Christian love. There is no way in God's world, that you can read that passage and then come away saying, I don't have to do anything in this process of transformation. It's all the work that he does. Over and over and over again, it's using the, the phraseology exercise and develop. When Paul says to Timothy, exercise yourself unto godliness, he's saying there are some things that you can do. What does that mean practically? What are these things that we, we can do? O over the centuries of Christian thought and tradition, people who have, like you and I, pursued this objective of being like Christ have concluded that we can become like him by doing the things that he did and by following the overall style of his life, if you like, that he chose for himself. A lot of people talk about following in the dust of a rabbi. By that, that literally means people were linked up with a rabbi and they walked where he walked. They were often transient, itinerant. And so the rabbi would go and his followers would walk and the dust, obviously in the dry ground of the Middle East, would be kicked up. And by the end of the day, you would be covered in the dust of your rabbi. And the idea was that not only would you pick up the, the physical dust that would be kicked up by his traveling, but that you would see how he lives. You would live as he lived. And at the end of the process, you would do as he did. You would become as he was. So if we're following Jesus, the idea is that his life in many ways becomes ours and we engage in his deeds, in his form of life by engaging in the disciplines that he engaged in. Dallas Willard says this, he said, we can through faith and grace become like Christ by practicing the types of activities he engaged in, by arranging our lives around the activities he himself practiced in order to remain at home in the fellowship of his father. Now, some of you probably thinking, Don, that's, you know, that's a tall order. How on earth can we, can we be like Jesus? I mean, it's ridiculous, isn't it? I mean, he is God and we plainly are not. Yet, without doubt, the Bible says that he was God. He was God in the flesh. But the Bible also says in the incarnation and in taking on flesh and living among us as a man, he gave up his divine prerogatives. Philippians chapter two tells us that. Other passages tell us that. He gave up the divine prerogatives and he lived life subject to exactly the same limitations, the limitations of humanity that you and I have drawing only on the same resource that's available to you and I, the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So you can't just simply say, oh, well, you know, how do you expect to live like Jesus? I mean, he's God and we aren't. And, and we dismiss the possibility of organizing our lives around the same kind of things that he did by virtue of, of, of that argument. 
Some of you might be thinking, well, you know, that's, it's all very well, but, but how can you possibly say to me in the 21st century, live life and organize yourself around the same things that Jesus organized himself around? I mean, how can you emulate his patterns of life? I, I think that kind of question is based around the assumption that the eras are so different and so removed from one another that there's actually no point of comparison at all. I mean, Jesus lived in a one-horse town with mud huts and a pace of life that, that obviously would allow time for him to engage in things like prayer and contemplation, activities that in the 21st century are just beyond us. Well, you, you've possibly heard that little proverb, everything is different and nothing has changed, everything has changed and nothing is different. And I suspect that it's pretty much the same in terms of that argument. The eras are so different, you can't compare them. You know, according to G. Campbell Morgan, who was probably one of the greatest expositors that the 20th century produced, he said that Nazareth wasn't a one-horse town with a few mud huts and a few wild animals running around. It was probably a mid-sized city, 15,000 people plus. It was a bustling little metropolis known for its commerce and its prostitution. You see, it was a halfway house between Jerusalem in the south and the cities of Tyre and Sidon in the north. It became a place to stop over for travelers and business caravans and soldiers. As a result, it became known for the commercial possibilities, making a buck by serving the needs of all of these men, and I don't just mean their need for food and rest. That gave Nazareth a reputation. When Nathaniel said, can anything good come out of Nazareth, he wasn't talking about its size, he was talking about its reputation. It was a bustling little city, a bustling little culture given to overt sexuality and making a buck. And I said to the group this morning, aren't you glad you don't live in a world like that? Listen, rather than make excuses as to why we can't possibly follow in the footsteps of Jesus, I think you and I would be much more honest if we simply acknowledged the fact that the general human failing is to want the right, but at the same time not want to commit to the discipline that we know that that kind of life will require of us. That's why we have that old adage, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Let's consider briefly what kind of activities did Jesus engage in? What were the things that he centered his life around? Now, I hope if you've been a Christian for a little while, you've at least heard of the phrase, the spiritual disciplines. I'm hoping that some of you have done more than just heard about it, that you might have explored it and, and, um, and read about it and possibly even been practicing some of them. But the spiritual disciplines are those activities that traditionally and historically through the church centuries have been understood as to be the kinds of activities that Jesus did engage in, and that he arranged his life around these things so that, as Dallas Willard said, he developed and remained at home in the fellowship of his father. I'll outline them very briefly shortly, and then what we'll do hopefully is just maybe tease out a few of them next week, but I want to just keep talking just for a little bit on the, the general subject of the disciplines, those 
time-tested activities of both mind and body that purposefully and consciously we engage in as new men and women. Not to gain God's approval, but from that place of God's approval, we new men and women seek to bring our personalities and in fact our total beings into effective cooperation with the divine order. These are the things that Paul talked about when he said, Timothy, exercise yourself unto godliness. These classic spiritual disciplines are ways of placing ourselves before God so that he can transform us. Now, don't be mistaken. In and of themselves, the mechanics of these spiritual disciplines will do absolutely nothing for you. They simply put you in a place where God can work on you and and with you. Now, you, you'll know this if you've been on the way for a while. You've sought to transform yourself and have had, you know, been spectacular in your unsuccess like, like me. But you'll know that you can't transform yourself any more than a farmer can make a seed grow. The farmer doesn't have the capacity to make that seed grow. But what the, the farmer can do is put the seed in an environment where growth can actually occur. He takes the seed and he sows it in the soil. The spiritual disciplines are those activities that historically through the years of the church, we have acknowledged as being effective in terms of sowing to the spirit. This is the kind of environment that if you put your life in, with regularity something begins to change. Now, by themselves and of themselves, they do nothing. But what they do do is posture posture you, yourselves, so that something can be done. Now, I know when you're talking about discipline to people in this culture, people get really nervous. I mean, postmodernism really doesn't have a lot of time for routine and discipline. If you, if you have anything or you know anything about our society, we are addicted to adrenaline activities, to the spontaneous. We, we, we talk about getting people to think outside the limits and outside the box. And we've done that so regularly, most people in their lives don't even have a box to work out of. Spontaneity, by definition, is stepping out of the box. If you don't have a box to step out of, you're not spontaneous, you're chaotic. And, and our, our society is, is addicted to chaos. We are being called as disciples of Jesus through the spiritual disciplines back into a place where routine becomes part of who we are. It's, it's what we do. It's the environment in which we place our lives so that transformation can take place. People say to me, oh, Don, be careful. Legalism is around the corner. What you'll produce is a bunch of Pharisees. And I understand that comment because the Pharisees were, in fact, the experts in spiritual disciplines in their day. Clearly, it didn't produce the godliness it was supposed to in them. They were the ones who were most resistant to Jesus. They were pride-filled. They were arrogant. They were self-righteous. If you look at the parable Jesus told about the two men who went up to pray into the temple in Luke chapter 18, it's fascinating. Two men, he says, went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and one a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. I love that phrase. God's not even listening to this guy. He's praying thus with himself. God, I thank you. Must have been echoing a little. I thank you that I'm not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and he points to the publican. Like this man. I fast twice a week. I tithe 
of all that I possess. And he starts going through his spiritual disciplines. These are the things I do. This guy is arrogant. He's self-righteous. At the end of the story, by the way, Jesus turns the table and says, that was the man who went away justified. This guy, with all his spiritual disciplines, got absolutely nothing. I know the passage, or the practice rather, of spiritual disciplines can go wrong. That's the nature of human beings. We have this tendency to legalism, to arrogance, to self-righteousness. And, and, and in that spirit, these things that are meant to be a doorway of liberation can actually become a barrier to the very liberation that we seek. And you know what? We all have potential to be Pharisees. It's, it's deep within our hearts. When we tell the story of the Pharisees, we always make it somebody else. We always say, oh, they're a bit pharisaical, a bit self-righteous. What we don't realize is that there's a Pharisee in the heart of every one of us just waiting for the opportunity to manifest. However, noting that spiritual disciplines can go wrong, to throw them out because they can go wrong and at times and in places have been abused is an immature response. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. The spiritual disciplines, strictly speaking, are the activities that we carry out to prepare us for something other than the activity itself. We don't practice the piano to practice the piano. We practice it ultimately so that we can play it well. We don't practice musical scales to practice musical scales. We practice the musical scales so that ultimately we can be really good musicians. These things are means to an end. When they become mistakenly the ends, then you've completely misunderstood their purpose. People who think they are somehow spiritually superior because they practice spiritual disciplines have completely misunderstood the purpose of them. I can't speak for other people, but I, I can speak for me. And my need to practice the spiritual disciplines is not an indication of my strengths. It's an indication of my weaknesses. I fast not to show people how incredibly spiritual I am. I fast because, quite frankly, if I don't, I can completely lack self-control when it comes to food. I can be prone to times of gluttony. I know that that would never bother you. I give... Not because I'm this unbelievably generous person, although I would love to ultimately find myself by virtue of choosing that person. But I give because I know I'm prone to be a tight-fisted miser deep down in my heart, and I hold on to resources rather than freely give. I, I seek solitude to get away from people, not because they're pain in the rear end and I just can't be bothered to be with them, but I need to get away by myself because completely unlike you, I can be a poser when there are people around about me. And I have to get away and just deal with that aspect of my heart. I spend time in prayer, not because I'm the super holy person, but I spend time in prayer because I realize that if I don't, I can be this person who just goes about doing life without even thinking about God, without even trying to remember to draw on the resources that he's made available. I can just be this self-encapsulated person. I don't do these things because I'm incredibly spiritual. I do them because I'm incredibly unspiritual and I want that changed. 
Remember when you engage in the disciplines, you do them as a means to an end. They are training unto godliness. They are not training unto training. In and of themselves, actually, they, they don't do anything. They simply posture you in an environment where something can be done. Okay, having said all that by way of introduction, let me just very quickly tell you what some of the spiritual, long introduction, I know, I'm, I'm known for it, okay? Uh, I didn't mean the introduction to the sermon, okay? Don't, don't panic. I'm, I'm actually nearly at the end. Let me outline those activities that have been historically and traditionally regarded as spiritual disciplines. Then maybe we'll come back to some of them next week and try and tease them out just a little bit further. The list of spiritual disciplines may vary depending on whose book or whose tradition you are considering, but there's considerable agreement on the core spiritual disciplines that historically over the centuries have, be, have been regarded by people who have sought Christ-likeness as that environment in which things seem to grow. So put yourself in that environment. Dallas Willard, in his superb book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, he makes two broad categories of disciplines. He says there are the disciplines of abstinence. These are the things that for a time and for a season you stop doing. And then he says there are the disciplines of engagement. These are the things that we actually choose to do and engage in. In the disciplines of abstinence, Willard includes things like solitude and silence and fasting, and frugality, and chastity, and secrecy, and sacrifice. In the disciplines of engagement, he said there's things like study, and worship, and prayer, and celebration, and, and gathering, and service, and giving, and fellowship, and confession, and submission. Richard Foster, if you only read one book on the spiritual disciplines, read this one, okay? Richard Foster's, it's a classic, it's called The Celebration of Discipline. He has a slightly different way of listing the disciplines. He puts them in three categories. He said there are the inward disciplines, activities like meditation and fasting and prayer and study. Then he says there are the outward disciplines, including simplicity and solitude and submission and service. And then he says there are the corporate disciplines, including confession, worship, guidance, and celebration. As I say, next week, obviously we aren't going to go through all of these, but next week I might just pick out one or two and talk about how that might look, what, what that might look like in high heel shoes and gym shoes and, and, and gum boots. Okay? As I say, um, these are the activities over the years, historically, traditionally, that have been considered as helpful in exercising ourselves unto godliness. Quite frankly, some of them sound really strange to postmodern ears. Solitude, now there's a thought. Most of us can't live without our friends for more than five minutes, and we are on social media even when we're not with them. We are not alone. And the thought of being alone, quite frankly, for some of you, is torturous. Why, why would that be? It's a thought. Most of us don't think the thought. We just avoid the possibility. But it's alone that you start being face-to-face -face with who you are. And if transformation's gonna happen, first of all, you gotta know who you are. And the Holy Spirit will be faithful in those moments when you are silent and alone. 
and start talking to about the way you respond to things. Other things, you know, frugality, chastity, they aren't really words that we consider in our, in our culture. It might well be, though, that some of these things are absolutely crucial in terms of putting us in a place where we can be changed. I was telling the group this morning, one of the disciplines that I have over my 40 years engaged in and out of with varying degrees of success has been this whole area of fasting. I, I, um, I came from a tradition, from a tr- traditional church where they set Friday aside as, as kind of like, you, you weren't allowed meat on, that, on the Friday, you were only allowed fish. And it was kind of this introducing you to sort of an area of discipline. But hey, if you like fish and chips, it's hardly a sacrifice. And I like fish and chips. As I said, I'm prone to... Anyway, um, when I came into the Pentecostal stream, I came into a church that talked a great deal about prayer and fasting. And we were... We were sort of introduced to this whole idea of prayer is powerful, but you add fasting to it and it becomes dynamic. And I'm, I'm not making fun of, of that tradition. But I began to realize over the years I was approaching fasting with an attitude that really I didn't think was healthy. And I, and I had done fasting with regularity and quite frankly some rather long fasts. And I kind of imagined that they were leverage, you know, that I was kind of putting God in a little bit of a spot with, oh, well, prayer and fasting. I mean, what can I do? I have to answer. And I began to think there's something desperately wrong with this because I know things are by grace through faith and it's not about putting God in your debt. But I was using fasting in a way that that was little short of earning things. And so a few years ago, I decided, I'm not going to do this anymore. I recognize there's something valuable in this, but I don't understand it. And I'm not doing it with that kind of attitude. So I just stopped fasting. And for about, I don't know, five, maybe, maybe more years, six or seven years, I, I didn't fast with any regularity. Relatively recently, I've started getting back into that. And I, I just to tell you, it's not with the idea that I think, you know, there is leverage and I'm back into the business of pumping God's arm up his back. I I just realized that, that I need the discipline. I desperately need the discipline of saying no to my body. Now, I'm not quite sure of all the spiritual things. Uh, You know, I'm not discounting it. I've read the books like you have about how God changes history through prayer and fasting and all that stuff. I've just got to a place where, you know, okay, I, I don't know that I've seen history change through my prayer and fasting, especially my history, but I know me and I know that I need to be in a place where I can say, you know what? No. Paul talked about beating his body into submission because he wanted to finish the race well. And I realized I was just giving my body free reign when it came to food. I'd eat whatever I wanted to, whenever I wanted to, however I wanted to. Some of you are saying, yeah, no, I can see it. (laughs) Somebody once said something to me and, and and it hit me hard. And they said, Don, how is it that people can give their lives in a moment as a martyr for Christ? Well, you know, I, I, I made some comment like, well, in those moments, God will give you the grace that you need. And I'm sure that he does. But they came back to me and said, but how is it that people who have not died to anything in their lives 
suddenly come to a place where they do this massive turnaround and they give their whole lives in a glorious death for Jesus. He said, would it not be better to, along the line, learn what it is to put to death things so that that step is actually not that big a step? And it just, bang, it just hit me. I realized, I'm, as a classic Pentecostal, I'm looking in that moment, should it ever arise, for a supernatural infusion of grace that will take the little old me that wouldn't die to anything to suddenly this massive hero that will die for Christ. And I realized, that's, I'm dreaming. I'm, I'm dreaming. If I can't say no to some of those things that rise up before me and I'm saying, you know what, no. Sorry, but no. I'm not doing that. It's virtue. It's this power of small choices that are sometimes hard. Listen, some of you are thinking, man, I tried fasting. I lasted till 10 o'clock. I've broken more fasts than most of you have had hot meals. I've broken, uh, you know, I'm not boasting. I'm ashamed. I have started and stopped more fasts than I can begin to count. And I know how hard it is. It can, it, it's, it's tough. I was joking this morning. and said, you know, the first time I fasted, I thought oh, this would be simple. 24 hours, man, I can do that easily. I tell you, by the end of that day, I'm, I, I, I'm looking at anything as a possible food source. <laughs> Cat goes by. Hmm. <laughs> I can just imagine this, the, you know, the, this thing on a spit. <laughs> yeah, kitty, 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 kitty. <laughs> I was, I was totally blown away. I was totally blown away by how ingrained in me this trip was. Is that a, is that a laugh of recognition or just, <laughs> I won't put you on this spot. If you don't believe me, you try it. Some of you are thinking, oh, come on, how hard can it be? You, you do it. You try it. You start. I'll tell you what. You have to learn, and it's hard. And, and prayer's the same. You take any one of those spiritual disciplines, you won't fall into them easily. That's why they're called disciplines. You'll do them, and, and you'll think, that didn't change anything. I, I, I fasted one day, I'm, I'm not a spiritual giant. How, how is it that we can think like that, and we don't think like that about anything else? You, you don't go to the gym your first day, sign up at the gym, go down first day, you know, buy the new gear, new gym shoes, you know. You're all, and, and for the first, you know, probably 20 minutes, you're lifting and, and you go into the changing room, no one's around, lift up your top, see if there's a six pack. <laughs> you laugh because that's plainly ridiculous. It doesn't happen like that. But neither does spiritual development. Neither does neither does. Nothing happens like that in life, quite frankly. And spiritual discipline doesn't. And you don't drift into spiritual discipline. You choose it intentionally again and again and again. Sometimes people say to me, Don, how is it that you get things out of the Bible? Listen, because I read it. <laughs> There's a thought. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I read it sometimes and it's like, eating dry wheat bix and trying to whistle. It's, so, it's like, 
I don't even know what I read. I'd put it down and some days I'd go away. What was that about? I, I, three minutes later, I can't remember it. Often it's like that. People who tell you I go to the Word of God and it just falls open, they're either telling lies or they're on a different planet than me and you, at least me. I just, I just, I just keep going. I keep reading. And it's amazing over a long period of time how suddenly this second order of naturalness has developed and, and you start connecting things and seeing things and that belongs with that. I've seen this and suddenly it starts happening. Didn't, didn't, didn't for a start and it doesn't always even now. But it's what you do. It's putting that seed in that place where something can happen. Worship is like that. That's why we say to you, let's stand and let's worship. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.